Good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. You'll see some pictures behind me, and these pictures come from three different areas where I was the last 10 days doing some training. Pastor Trent from our Loring Park campus went with me as well. And it's part of our Wooddale initiative to plant what we hope to be over 12,000 churches in five different nations of Asia where less than 1% of the people know who Jesus is. We train about 142 of these individuals who oversee church planters. They're training church planters. And this is our second time through them. Uh, we've, we, it takes us usually two years to go through a group of leaders, get them properly trained. But out of this group, we will probably see about, conservatively speaking, 2,500 churches planted, yielding about 25,000 brand new believers in Christ. So and we praise God for that. And um, I want you to know that every, uh, uh, every, dollar, every dollar you give, 20 cents of that dollar goes to do things like this and to bring change hearts and lives. And remember, each church needs to take care of widows and orphans and addresses the issue of sex trafficking in their village or town. So it's very holistic in that sense. So thank you for what you do in helping us with those initiatives. And I bring you greetings from them. They're thankful to you for your prayers and your support. We're starting a brand new series called Missing. And we're going to be talking about people who are missing. People are missing in God's family and the opportunity that God gives us to, to go find them and, and to bring them home, so to speak. I don't know about you, but I have a problem of losing things all the time. In particular, I lose keys and wallet. Anybody else suffer from that disease? And when I do, it is not very fun for my wife, Marcia, because especially when I lose my wallet, I go crazy. Like, I just start ripping everything apart in the house. It doesn't matter to me. I have got to find my wallet. And when I find my wallet, it is the best feeling in the world. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's great, but there's a mess afterwards, right? There's a mess afterwards. In the same way, we're supposed to have these same kind of emotions. On the one hand, we're supposed to like, be desperate to bring back the missing, to find the missing. And on the other hand, we're to experience this elation and joy when they're found. In this first message that we're going to look at in our short series, we're just going to be talking about an attitude that God wants us to have when it comes to finding the missing. I read an article uh, the other day. It was uh, written in the uh, UK Independent Magazine about a hotel at an airport in Brussels where they've got a program for lonely travelers. Dean Dillon, the manager of the hotel, describes the program. He said, we know that travelers are sometimes lonely, and so we allow them to rent a goldfish for the night. And he said, it's really working. He said, we actually have people who will rent goldfish and they'll do selfies, selfies with their goldfish and post it on social media, look who slept with me last night. And I, I just thought to myself, that's kind of a nice little trick and uh, brings in a little bit of money and helps people deal with their loneliness. But, but it just touches on the fact that there's so many lonely people in our world right now, aren't there? And while I love pets and pets are great, it's no replacement for the kind of friendship, the kind of attachment we need with other human beings. And this caused me, reading that article, caused me to rethink a little bit the words of Jesus in Matthew 4.19 when he issued an invitation to his first followers. Do you remember what he said? He said, come follow me and I'll make you what? I'll make you fishers of men. 
fishers of people, in other words. And I thought to myself, is what Jesus, is it what he's really saying, come follow me and I'll make you friends of others? Like a fish is to that person in the hotel, am I to be a friend to others? Or is Jesus even taking it a step further? Is he calling you and me to be even something closer than a friend to others? If he is, what does he mean and how do we get there? Because that's the key to seeing our world changed and people's lives turned around. It is not an option for us. So to look at what Jesus means by all this, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Would you do that, please? Luke chapter 15, it's in the Bibles that we provide as well. And we're going to look at three stories together in Luke chapter 15. <clears throat> I want to begin by looking, though, at the setting of Luke chapter 15. Who's there? Who's listening to these stories? Here's what it says. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the, of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, in the New Living Translation, it does a better job translating the term sinners because it picks up the, the intensity of what's meant there. NLT gets it right when it says that tax collectors and notorious sinners. Do you know any notorious sinners? Are you sitting next to one? Are you one? Aren't we all really notorious sinners? Rebels? So you've got cheats, the tax collectors. You've got notorious sinners, the immoral. And then you've got the religious right. You've got these religious folks that are very self-righteous, that are all about keeping the law, and they all have different reactions to Jesus. On one hand, the tax collectors and the notorious sinners they seem comfortable with Jesus, which seems odd, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus is as righteous as righteous can be. He's holy. He's just. He's God. You would think that these, that these uh, notorious sinners would want to stay a mile away from somebody like Jesus. But they seem to be attracted to Jesus. And he seemed to be attracted to them. And that's what upsets the religious leaders, on the other hand, they're upset, they're uptight because they can't figure out why somebody who claims to be the Son of God would want to even be near such scum of the earth as these tax collectors and notorious sinners. Why doesn't he act more like them? Why doesn't he stay on the other side of the fence away from people like that? Why does he contaminate himself with them? So in their minds, Jesus makes absolutely no sense. Seems like Jesus likes to hang out with people like that. They don't hang out with people like that. They consider themselves very spiritual and very religious. So if they, in their religiosity, don't want to hang out with people like that, what is Jesus doing hanging out with people like that? And so Jesus has this complex <clears throat> audience, an issue in front of him. And to deal with it, to give a message to the notorious sinners and their kind, and a message to the religious leaders and their kind, and a message to you and me, he tells three stories. And we're going to look at those together. Now, I want to weave into these stories some Middle Eastern background because if you don't have that, you don't appreciate the stories. 
Ken Bailey, who's a scholar who lived in the Middle East for a long, long time and has studied the culture, helps us understand what their listeners would have understood in Jesus' day, but we miss out in our day. So I'm going to kind of weave it in to help us understand these stories better. The first story is about a man who has 100 sheep that he's looking after. Now understand, in the Middle Eastern culture, unless you're extremely wealthy, you didn't have 100 sheep. That often in the village, you'd have one or two shepherds taking care of everybody's sheep. And so he might have a handful of his own sheep, and then he's got some of your sheep, some of yours, some of yours, some of yours, some of yours, some of yours. He's responsible for all of them, and we're paying him to kind of keep an eye on them while we go out and do our other work. So he's counting his sheep in the pen, and he gets to 99, and I got to count all over again. 99, and oh no, Bob's sheep is missing. What are we going to do about that? When he leaves the 99 in the pen, they're safe. No problems with them. And he goes on this tremendous search to find that one lost sheep. It's like me trying to find my wallet. It's got to be here someplace. He looks over hill. He looks through dale. Until finally he finds that sheep. Maybe it's by a bramble bush someplace. When he finds it, he picks it up and he puts it on his shoulders. And he feels the absolute relief that I feel when I find my credit cards. <gasps> Ah, I can breathe a sigh of relief. And he's going home. He's actually quite happy bringing Bob's sheep back. And he places him in the pen. And he has to call Bob. And he has to call Julie and Frank and Sally and say to them, you'll never guess what happened. You know, I watch on 100 sheep. Well, I lost Bob's sheep. Bob, I lost your sheep. But don't worry about it. I found your sheep. I got a pot of coffee on the table. You mind coming over? Let's celebrate together. This is an awesome awesome evening. I got to the sheep before the coyote did. You look back at the text. And verse 7 says, Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing. Do you get that? More rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, if you are one of the notorious sinners hearing this, how do you feel? I'm feeling kind of good. So I get a feeling that Jesus is likening me to that lost sheep. And if I'm one of the righteous Pharisees, I'm feeling kind of ticked. Better off to let that lost sheep be eaten by the coyote. If it's foolish enough to go wandering off. So Jesus presses the story more. He talks about a woman. A woman who had ten coins. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Hey, wait a minute. Where's, where's, the, where's, the, where's the tenth coin? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And she goes in desperate search. Where's that tenth coin? She sweeps the house. She looks under everything. She looks through everything until finally she finds that lost coin. And when she finds it, Oh, she feels washed. She feels at peace. She feels joy. And she calls up Bev. And she calls up Bob, small village. And she calls up Charlie. And she calls up Sue and says, I had 10 coins. I lost one. I desperately searched the house. And I finally found it. I got some tea boiling. Why don't you come over and celebrate with me? Because this is a wonderful night. And Jesus responds to it. He says in verse nine. He says in verse, uh, sorry, verse ten. In the same way, I tell you, 
There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So you have this scene. It's like there's another dimension that's looking in on our dimension. And all heaven is kind of watching and the angels are watching. And every time someone repents and, and comes to faith in Christ, it's like all of heaven goes, yay! All of heaven has a time of celebration, rejoicing. Shouldn't we be doing that too? I mean, should the church be like one really happy place? I mean, look at us all sitting in here. You should have my perspective today. It's not still raining outside, is it? I mean, church should be a joyful place, jam-packed with people because all we do is celebrate. We have balloons in this place. We have cupcakes available because every week we're celebrating. Somebody came home. You know, Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if God's will in heaven is to rejoice over every person who repents, every missing person who comes home, my goodness, shouldn't it be what we're doing too? What do you think? All right. Got a couple of you. Seriously. She rejoicing about that. And then Jesus tells a third story. It's his most famous story. Now maybe it's tied with a good Samaritan story, but it's, it's pretty well known. It's the story of the prodigal son. It's about a father and his three sons. You say, wait, wait, wait. You meant father and two sons. No, I meant father and three sons. You say, where's the third son? I'll tell you at the end. Now, if you heard it before, you know the answer. If you haven't heard it before, you're going to discover the answer. But I want us to walk through the story, maybe from a little bit of a different angle. In the story, we know that the Father, Jesus, means to represent God. So it's already a bit scandalous that he would do that. And the religious, religious leaders are going to have a bit of an issue with it. Boy, they're going to have an issue with it pretty soon. And the notorious sinners and the others, they're shocked by it. This is certainly not how they ever thought about the father. And Jesus tells us that the father has two sons. And I'll tell you about the third one later. One is the eldest son. The eldest son is very responsible, very loyal, works very hard. Probably has in his top three strength finders, if they had it back then, probably has responsibilities, number one. How many of you are the eldest in your family, son or daughter like me? Raise your hand. We're good people, aren't we? <laughs> there are a lot of, there are a lot of firstborn in this place. How many, again, you're, first, you're the eldest first? Wow, 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 wow. He had then a youngest son. Now, the youngest son was irresponsible. The youngest son was free-spirited, rather rebellious. How many of you are the youngest in your family? You are the cause of most of the problems <laughs> in the family, aren't you? Just kidding, kind of. <laughs> but no, he was, he was a rebel. And he comes to his dad and he says to his dad, I want, I want my portion of the estate, which is like saying to your father, I wish you were dead. Because that's when you get your inheritance. You're dead to me, dad. Give me my inheritance. Now, I imagine contextually, knowing what the eldest son is like from the whole story, knowing the whole story, I can almost imagine the eldest son grabbing his father by the shoulder and saying, don't give him a dime, Dad. 
You know, you know he's a brat. You know he's a troublemaker. You know he doesn't care. You know he's going to waste it all. It's kind of like the religious leaders, right? Don't mess with those sinful people. They're not worth it. But then the father does something that's so outlandish when you think about God. He gives the son what the son wants. Don't take the fruit from that tree, God said to Adam and to Eve. For the day that you eat thereof, you shall die. But if you want to disobey me, if you want to take what really doesn't belong to you, then go ahead, but there are consequences for it. So he gives the son his portion, and when the son gets it, he goes off to a far distant country where he spends it on wine and women and gambling, having a great old time. I wonder what it was like for dad at home. I think it's important for us to think a little bit about this because it's not how we usually think about God. If any of you are a parent and have or have had a prodigal child, then you can understand this. I understand it. What's it like to sit at the table for the father and to look at the spot that his son usually sat in? He's never there. Or to walk by the bedroom where he always slept and to peek in and see that there's no imprint left on the bed anymore of his son's body. Every day that father is reminded that his son is missing. And he doesn't know if he's alive or if he's dead, if he's sick or if he's healthy, if he's okay or if he's in trouble. I don't know if you've ever thought about God that way, that God would feel that way about you and me and about the people on this earth. I think somehow we sometimes arrive in our mind that God doesn't have feelings like that. That God's kind of stiff and distant. And According to Jesus' story, that's, that's really not the case. God misses his family. Well, the son spends all his time, all his money, parties hard until finally he has no money left. His friends leave. And to make matters worse, Jesus says, a terrible famine affects the land. There's no food to eat. And it is so bad for this young man that he is forced to get a job feeding pigs. Now, this young man is a Jew. So feeding swine is not, you know, something that, that a Jew is going to do unless it is like desperate straits. So you know he is in really, really, really serious bad condition. In fact, he is so hungry that Jesus says in verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. You don't get much lower than that. So he decides to go home. And he creates a plan in his mind for how he's going to do it. He's going to work out his salvation. He's going to go home. He's going to say... Listen, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you, Dad. And I know that I said to you in, this, in, in effect that you are dead to me. 
And I assume you probably look at me and I'm dead to you. So I don't even want to ask you to take me back as your son. Just hire me on for a while as a hand on the farm. Maybe he has in his mind that he'll pay his dad back. Maybe he has it in his mind he'll make enough money, then leave home and kind of move on to the next thing. But that's his plan. And he heads home. Now, you and I have to understand something culturally. <clears throat> in that culture, and to this very day in many Middle Eastern and Asian, Asian cultures, when you offend the father, the family, you offend the whole village. They're less into individualism like we are. They're far more communal. And everybody knows each other's business. And they're all kind of one unit. So when you do something wrong in that unit, you, you, it affects everybody. In fact, just this past week I spent time with a pastor. And he was telling me his story. And how when he came to faith, the villagers, his parents, his dad, his brother, and the villagers surrounded him and said, Look, either you repent of your, of your commitment to Christ and, and rejoin us in our religion or we'll kill you or you leave. So he said, I'll leave. And he said, they brought all my stuff out of my house and burned it in front of me and told me if I ever came back again, they'd kill me. This is a serious deal. When that boy left the village and went off to waste that money, he had not only offended the father, he offended the entire village, the honor of the village. People would be talking about this. So when he goes home, I mean, he's kind of risking his life. Because he may go home and the villagers may decide, we're not taking this guy back. He might get stoned before he ever sees his dad. Which helps us understand something in the story. I guess that the father in a truly Middle Eastern scene probably every day wondered if he's coming back. And probably every day looked down the street wondered if his son was coming. On this particular day, Jesus says, the father looked into the far distance and he saw his son coming. He could tell it was his son. He knew how his son carried himself. He knew how his son walked. And the father does something very undignified in that culture. To this very day, it's undignified. And this makes no sense at all if you think about God from a human perspective, particularly the Pharisee's perspective, the father goes running to his son. Running to his son with his arms open wide, not carrying a club to beat his son, but in his arms, filled with mercy and compassion, when he comes upon his son, he enraptures his son with his arms and kisses him on the cheek and pours out love and mercy on that boy. Now, why does the father do that? Well, he's driven by compassion text makes that clear, but because we understand the culture, the Middle Eastern culture, the other thing he's doing is he's making a statement to everybody else watching. Everybody else that might want to stone and condemn that son, what he's saying to them is, this is my son, I'm taking him back, don't mess with him. I approve of him, I love him, and I want you to treat him the same way. So when Jesus goes to these people, Adulterers, adulteresses, thieves and tax collectors. Those who have leprosy and all kinds of problems and who are demon-possessed. What is he saying? What is he saying to everybody? What's he saying to the religious elite? He's saying to them, my father loves them. Don't mess with them. If you read the Gospels carefully, the only people Jesus ever gets angry at are the, are the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And he says, he says, my people 
are like sheep without a shepherd. The shepherds are abusing them instead of loving them and ministering to them and finding them and bringing them home. It breaks my heart, he says. There's also something else that's very unique in the story. It's a very important theological point to grasp. Forgiveness always precedes repentance. I want you to remember that. Forgiveness always precedes repentance. It is not repentance before forgiveness. If it's repentance before forgiveness, then it's based on my effort. My salvation is not based on my effort. It is based on what God does for me. Repentance is the response. Repentance is the willingness to then go home once I experience God's love. Did you notice that the father just wraps love all around this boy before the boy ever utters his words? And when the boy finally utters his words, it says in verse 21, The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. It says in verse 22, But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him, the ring on his finger, the sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a party. Let's have a feast to celebrate. For the son of mine who was lost is found, who's missing his back, who's dead is alive. See, when the father saw the son coming, he already knew the son had a repentant heart. His heart is already broken. And the son who says, I'll come back as a hired hand, the father's not going to have any of that. See, the son might have thought that the father thought that he was dead to him. The father never saw his son as dead to him. The son may have seen the father as dead to him, but the father never saw the son as dead to him. The son belonged in the family. And of course, the eldest brother shows up and he sees the party going on, right? And he's very upset. When the dad comes out to talk to him, he says to his dad, I don't understand what you're doing. He says in the passage of Scripture in verse 30, he says, but when this son of yours, notice how he says it, but when this son of yours, like I don't want anything to do with him anymore, he's dead to me, dad. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. You have a party for him. What about me? I've been loyal and faithful to you my whole life. I haven't done anything like that. But you never gave a party like this to me and my friends. And the dad responds to him in verse 31. It says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, I love to play here. The eldest brother says, this son of yours. I love what the dad does. His dad says, I don't care what you think you say, he's still part of your family. This brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You ought to be happy about that. You ought to be happy about that. You Pharisees ought to be happy about what's happening right now in Israel. The angels are rejoicing. You should be rejoicing. And that's where the third son comes in. See, the third son is the son who's telling the story. It's Jesus. Because it's Jesus who the father sends to find the prodigals to bring them home to him. Jesus, the exact representation of the father, and so in his love and compassion and mercy, he's telling us what the father is like. It's Jesus who comes running to us and wraps his arms of mercy and grace around us and says, the father and I, we are ready to forgive you. 
No, we have to do is repent and he brings us into the presence of the Father who receives us with gladness and with joy and all heaven breaks out in celebration. Amen. That's the beautiful story of the gospel. Now you can say, nope, I don't want to go home and suffer the consequences, but that's your choice. And the Father gives us the capacity to make that choice. It's hard to imagine that people make that choice. But the Father aches for us to come home. And so here's the, here's, the, here's the point. The Father wants you and me to have the same attitude that his son has toward the unbelievers who are around us. He wants us to go beyond befriending people who don't know Jesus. He wants us to actually see them as family. I got some news for you that may make you glad or indifferent. Are you ready for it? I am related to you. Seriously, I'm related to you. I'm not talking about just spiritually speaking, you know, we're, we're, we have the blood of Christ that relates us. I'm saying physically, I'm related to you. I'm part of your family. You didn't know that, but I am. I'll be coming over after service. Just kidding. <laughs> See, if you take your ancestry and I take my ancestry and we all trace it back and we go all the way to the end, guess what? We're all going to meet and have the same mom and dad called Adam and Eve. So our racism is just so foolish. That's why the caste system is so foolish. We're all brothers and we're all sisters. Maybe quite distant from each other, but we ultimately are all part of the human family. And that's how God wants us to see each other. It's all part of the same family. It's just that there's a whole bunch of us that are missing at the table. And our job, my job, is to go find them and say, you're missed at the table, brother, sister. Come home. Come home. That's a good message, isn't it? So we've got this little strategy that helps us with it. It's in your worship folder. Pull it out real quick. It's called Adopt 7. I've talked about it before, but you may be new with us, and you may have forgotten about it. I want to refresh your memory. Adopt 7 is a simple strategy for how to think about people as family. What it visualizes, and I'll go to my drawing pad, pad here, it visualizes you as that one person. And, you know, I just chose 7 because I love the number 7. I don't care if it's 5 or 50, all right? But... All of us have people in our lives, however many they are, okay, that may not know Jesus yet. It may be a neighbor, maybe the person who delivers your mail, a person who picks up your garbage, maybe a coworker. If you have children, it may be a parent or one of your kids' friends. It may be another student. It may be a teacher, it may be a coach. You may know their name, you may not know their name, but they're in your life for a reason. God wants you to be Jesus to them. God wants you to go that, to them and treat them as family and bring them home. And we have three simple ways to do that. The first one is simply pray for them. It's all outlined there for you. On the back, there's a place for you to put their names or what they do if you don't know their name. But just if we all would just begin to pray for Adopt 7 like I do mine. I don't know the names of several of my Adopt 7, but I write down what they do. I could show you in my prayer journal. That's how I know them. I pray for them. I pray for them every day. Pray that God would open their eyes, that God would make them aware of himself, that God would make a way for me or somebody else to show them and share with them the love of Christ. The second thing we do is we, sh we serve them. 
We try to find ways to serve them. It could be with a smile, with a kind word. It could be with a tip. It could be with help. But we just are always praying for God to show us ways we can serve them. And the last thing is we share with them. When the moment finally comes and they say, why are you so kind? We talk about how God has been so kind to us. If they want to know more, we talk about how kind God is toward them. In hopes and prayer that someday we get a chance to introduce them to Jesus, to bring them home. And if it's not us, maybe we're planting the seed and somebody else will do it. But we're thinking of them as family. Family that need to be brought home to their place around the table. It's going to be a great series. But it starts with change in our attitude. How do you see the people around you? Would you fill that card out? Would you keep it this series so we can pray over it and we can keep talking about it? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for sending Jesus, your son, who came to this earth with outstretched arms, not filled with condemnation and judgment, but love and grace. It says in your word, Jesus said himself, I have not come to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved, might be reconciled, might be brought back into relationship with my Abba, with the Father. I pray, O oh God, that you would in, instill us and infuse us with this same reckless love of God to go to the people that you place around us. To see them as our brothers and our sisters who are missing from the table. God, do a work in our lives to change our perspective. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's all sing and stand and sing that song, Reckless Love.